Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Digital Nomad Mastery podcast and videocast, where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. And we have amazing stories on these episodes. Uh, one of our cool stories is going to be how we interviewed someone uh, who's the first African-American to travel the world in every single country. And we're doing the before interview now. <laughs> and in a few years, we'll do the after interview once he's achieved his goal. So uh, our guest today is Eric Prince. Uh, he's the founder of Minority Nomad. Uh, it's a blog and also a video um, a YouTube channel where he documents his travel and he uh, video blogs from all over the world. He has a very unique uh, digital nomad lifestyle because uh, he's not hopping around all the time. He sets up bases for himself in different parts of the world, different regions. And we're going to be definitely asking him about a whole bunch of questions to do with his travel and about uh, being a digital nomad, making money online, and his uh, ultimate goal to visit every single country. Uh, so uh, Eric uh, is over there in Thailand today. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your background uh, for the sake of the listeners and the viewers. Cool. Oh, thank you. First of all, thanks so much, Ricky, for having me. Um, it, man, I love what you guys are doing, uh, and I love a lot of the stories that you guys are having, a lot of honesty, a lot of different perspectives. So thank you so much for uh, inviting me on your show. Uh, like you said, I'm Eric Prince. I founded uh, MinorityNomad.com. I want to say we started around 2012, actually taking it serious. Um, I'd say I've been a full-time digital nomad for about five years. Um, on the road for that amount of time. Um, I was in the United States military for 10 and a half years. That's what part, uh, sparked my passion for travel. Um, and I've always been an entrepreneur uh, ever since I was young. Um, I've, I've always had multiple sources of income uh, because I, I was blessed to have people around me who taught me those life lessons. So uh, yeah, so that's basically Eric in a nutshell. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a poor kid from Cleveland. Uh, I'm a former soldier. Uh, I'm a world traveler. I'm a digital nomad. Awesome. And there's definitely a lot to unpack, you know, quote unquote, a uh, little reference to travel. So uh, in terms of uh, unpacking your story, I'd love to hear about the military side of things. I mean, um, you're the first guest who's actually uh, been part of the U.S. military. So that's uh, a quite a unique story there. Tell us a little bit about uh, what made you uh, join the military? Was it uh, love of country, patriotism? Was it the coin, uh, the money? Uh, or was it the, the desire to actually travel as a member of the U.S. Army? Uh, tell us well, a little bit know, about the match over there. Well, it was a little bit of all of those things combined. The, the primary catalyst was uh, my son. I actually had a son when I was 16. And um, to take care of him or to at least, you know, give him a better life, um, the military was the option for me. I was, you know, uh, what was at the, when she was pregnant, I was a sophomore in high school. So, um, you know, for a lot of African-American males, that's the only, uh, that's one of the only options out, you know, it's, it's athletics um, or it's the military. Those are pretty much the, the narrative that we're presenting growing up. Um, when it comes to patriotism, that's the thing about being American. You're, you're built to be a GI Joe from the ground up, you know, and, and I think you're Canadian, I, I believe. And it's like uh, I am Canadian, but uh, you know, same yeah. thing. Patriotism, the yeah. GHO, real American hero. Exactly, like and like, and we're we're built that way. Like we're 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 the modern day version of the Spartan army. Like we're we're built to be patriotic and 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 soldiers one way or the other uh, through uh, blind support or actual uh, enlistment. Uh, so there was also that, and then the kicker for me was he says, "Hey, we'll pay for your college," and this was right before September 11th. 
So the story was like, hey, you just come in, you do a job, it's like any other job, we'll pay for college, there's no wars, and I'm like, let's go. It was like, you can go to Japan and Germany and Korea. And I'm like, all right, sign me up. So within a year of signing up, I was in Afghanistan because September 11th happened. So like I joined the military January of 2011. And then obviously September 11th happened and I was barely coming out of training. And so training finished, I was on an airplane heading to Afghanistan. So um, yeah, the military definitely, uh, all those things lined up uh, to be as the reasons for me to join the military. But I, I always like to tell people, Joining the U.S. military was the best decision I ever made, and leaving the U.S. military was one of the best decisions I ever made. Uh, so where all were you deployed? I mean, obviously, you, you mentioned Afghanistan after September 11th and then the, the war um, in Afghanistan. Where else did you end up going um, over your time in the military? Well, uh, actually, um, so the, it's, it's kind of hard to unpack that one because I was, uh, I was trained as – and a lot of people don't know this about the military. Uh, I was in the Air Force. I was in the U.S. Air Force, not the Army or Navy or Marines. Um, in, the, in the beginning of the war, we were being trained to do one job. Like for me, I was aircraft maintenance. I have a, a degree in aerospace maintenance technology. So if it flies, I can fix it. Um, so I was trained to be an aircraft mechanic, uh, engineer, whatever you want to call it. Um, once the war started, they didn't have enough security forces personnel. We didn't have enough equipment because you got to remember, we were coming out of a time where the military funding was cut big time. So they started to tap all of us young single guys for augmentee duties. So I was a security forces augmentee. So basically, I was a uh, aircraft maintenance guy who they pulled out of aircraft maintenance and then they put into security training. And I basically became a security officer, like a cop uh, or an MP. Uh, people would consider us MPs. So... Sometimes I would deploy to a place like Afghanistan as an aircraft maintenance technology, um, aircraft maintenance um, crew chief on C-130s. And then sometimes I would deploy to a place like Iraq uh, as security force personnel. So uh, a lot of my time was in the Middle East in official capacity, but I would end up going to Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I was at the time in Qatar. Um, I was in uh, Japan. I actually lived in Okinawa. I lived in uh, Busan in Korea. I was stationed in Germany. I did like, seven months in the south of Turkey. Um, and we did a lot of missions down into South America and Central America. So a little bit everywhere. And, but the thing is, I always volunteer. Like, I, I love to travel internationally. Like, A, uh, back then in a war zone, you would get hostile fire pay, you would get hazardous duty pay, you would get family separation pay, and your income was, uh, it wasn't taxed. So, and, and a lot of times uh, we received uh, reenlistment bonuses. So if you were getting your reenlistment bonus in the desert, it was untaxed. So if you were signing a $25,000 reenlistment bonus, no taxes, yeah, sign me up, I'll go to the desert. So a lot of it, a lot of my deployments had to do with me being young, me being single, and me being eager to get tax-free money. Wow, what a journey of being, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned quite a lot of different countries, everything from the Middle East to Asia to uh, over there in Latin America. So how many countries did you actually rack up? I mean, I know you're doing a little bit of a country counting now. Um, yeah, yeah. How many was it during that time frame? You know, I need to sit down and do that because you're like the second person to ask me that in this month. So I'll sit down and do that. But I want to say it's around 25 as a soldier. Like around 25 countries uh, I visited as a soldier. 
Okay, so still, that's only a, only a quarter of your current. Yeah, yeah, only a quarter. Uh, but I wanted to, but what I do want to do is, like places like Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Iraq, I haven't been back to those places since I became a civilian. So what I want to do is, after I've gone to every country in the world, I want to go back to the countries that I went to as a soldier, because I'm sure the experience is going to be entirely different. Absolutely. So tell us about the transition. I mean, uh, it's one thing to be a digital nomad in Thailand now. It's a whole other thing to be flying around the world in the military, uh, in the army. Uh, sorry, in the Air Force. I keep confusing Air all Force. Get it right, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> what kind of host are you? <laughs> uh, tell us about that transition. What made you leave? And uh, what was that transition like? So, you know, um, it, there was actually, there's actually a middle period that people rarely know about. Um, I went back to the university, University of Texas at Austin. So that's literally the bridge. The University of Texas is the bridge between my military service and uh, my digital nomadic lifestyle. Um, it was that, it was, it was about a two-year period there where the University of Texas helped me figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. Because you got to remember, man, when you basically sign up for the military at 17, and then you serve for you know, 10, 10 and a half years, your entire identity is wrapped up in that. Everything that you are is a soldier. Like, everything that you think and you feel and you understand comes from that environment. Um, and at the time, I didn't really understand who I was or what I actually believed in because it was always taught to me. It was always like you vote Republican because Republicans love the military. All right, cool. You know, like it's that kind of, kind of thing. So... I left. The, I decided to leave the military because I was just tired of fighting, man. I was just really tired of fighting. And there's this glass where, in a lot of instances, the true potential of a soldier is never realized because there's limits to what you can do. Like, for example, if you want to cross train into something else, you have to ask permission to go and try that job. Like, hey, I would like to be an air traffic controller, and they'll say, well, you know, no, you can't do that. Like, well but I want to do it, you know, I, I want to try it, you know, I'm good at this, I'm mastered this, why can't I go through something else? So I was tired of that, where they take, well, I, I was tired of being a cog in the wheel, you know, I love my service, my time in the service, I would highly recommend it to any young man who doesn't know what he wants to do, or young woman, uh, who doesn't know what they want to do with their lives, and have nothing, you know, next, it's a great place to find, to kind of get going in life. So when I left, I actually left active duty. I'm going to say I left active duty at around seven and a half years. Um, and I joined the uh, Air Force Reserves to go back to the university uh, with the blessing of my commander. Um, and I was, uh, my unit was in North Texas, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. And I went to the University of Texas, so it was easier for me to go to the University of Texas. And then uh, one weekend a month, two weeks a year, I would go up for the unit or I would go for a mission and you know and come back to school so it was just a great situation and during my time at the University of Texas um, I was uh, working on a project uh, about the effects of government legislation on minority communities so uh, I have degrees in uh, English government and history and I was working uh, I, was, I was looking at the uh, being an african-american male I was I was uh, fascinated by how how systemic marginalization of uh, people of color and poor people in the United States um, just isn't known by the masses. So as I was studying that, I just saw how messed up our system was. Like, it is a 
archaically biased and discriminatory governmental system in the United States. It is, if so, if, I think if more people in the United States sat down and actually understood how flawed our system is, it will be a totally political shift, but you know, we shall see. So through that, I, I, I started to uh, question myself and, and all this time I was still traveling. Like I was doing missions for the Air Force Reserves. Um, I was doing, um, I was doing trips uh, to Hispaniola for research. Um, I was going to Haiti uh, for um, for humanitarian relief stuff. Going to Costa Rica, going to Panama, going to uh, Chile. I was going to uh, Europe as well, just because I wanted to, you know. Um, and I was there, you know. And I got to a point where I began to realize that who I am at that moment was largely developed by travel. So I decided to create this, this organization to teach low-income kids about photojournalism and travel. At the base of all this, I'm a photographer at the, at the foundation. I've been a photographer since I was 13. So at the base of all of this, I'm a photographer. And photography has been the way that I've relayed my story to people. And it's an amazingly inexpensive tool for people of color to tell their stories. And it's always been that way. Like you could look at the work of Gordon Parks and what he did for Life Magazine to kind of tell the narrative of the black experience in America. Um, and really, it just spiraled out of control and all of a sudden I have three companies and like, it's insane. Uh, and by the way, um, you know, Eric's photography is outstanding. Make sure you check it out in his blog. If you go to Minority Report, um, not Minority Report, Minority Nomad, uh, and if you click on the link photography, you'll be able to see all of his uh, beautiful photography from around the world. You can check that out. Uh, Eric, you mentioned three companies. So tell us about those three companies you're currently running. Okay, so one of them I'm not going to talk about yet, uh, but. The first one is Minority Nomad, the brand of Minority Nomad. Um, so I still work as a, a digital uh, digital influencer, uh, a brand ambassador for a couple companies. Uh, I've worked with um, SAS. I've worked with Shangri-La Hotels. I've, uh, Singa is one of my bigger clients uh, here in Thailand uh, or Sing. Um, I've worked with companies all around the world uh, promoting destinations, uh, promoting products. I've worked with Sony cameras before. Um, so that is my initial uh, source of like initial source of income, even though it's a small portion now. Uh, the next uh, company that I have is a small digital marketing firm uh, where we create digital influencer campaigns for companies in the luxury space. Um, and, and that's really where a lot of the meat of my income has started to come from uh, is teaching luxury brands how to reach millennials, basically people from 21 to 40 year olds, um, how to reach them. Um, it's interesting, as of this year, millennials are the largest business travel market um, and companies are still working on an antiquated system of advertisement. I mean, they are literally still taking out billboards and print ads and magazines, which kind of still work, but they're not investing that much into digital marketing. And the, the space is so wide open. And I saw this you know, four years ago and I started to do old school business transactions and negotiations. I, I think one of the biggest issues that a lot of uh, digital nomads have is they don't understand how to actually go into a conference and shake somebody's hand and, and make that one-on-one -on -one personal connection. And that's how I've been blessed to get my second company off the ground. And then the third company, I'm gonna let you know later. I, pro I promise I'm not hiding anything. It's something really special, but I don't wanna uh, put it on the public.
So yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have to invite you back. Uh, and I do, maybe we won't have to wait until the, the 193rd country. We might invite you back in the middle. Uh, so Eric, uh, uh, you know, uh, we covered about your job and the ways you're making income. Tell us about your travels. I mean, uh, uh, once you left uh, um, our uh, Air Force and then uh, you decided uh, you wanted to actually um, travel to every country in the world as the first African-American. Tell us about that journey. I mean, uh, uh, it's very inspiring, by the way. I mean, I'm a minority as well. Um, I'm of Indian descent, uh, born in Canada. And I'd love to be the first Indian to travel to every country in the world. So uh, we might be up on the podium, the first yeah. Indian, the first African-American yeah. country it's in the world together. You know, it, and it's so interesting that people don't understand, you know, from one man of color to another, they, people don't understand like, the power of that narrative, the power of that journey, um, the power to look and see, like, hey, this person who looks like me, who talks like me, who understands my struggle, my background, did this this amazingly big huge hard thing they they did that you know um i think for example barack obama i think his impact is still understated uh, the impact that like uh, and, and he is definitely getting his props but i don't think people are even going to understand until 20 30 years down the line the impact of a man of color being elected president of the united states really, really has on generations of people. So I actually never even want, I didn't even try. I wasn't even trying to go to every country in the world. I just wanted to travel a lot. That's it. That was the only thing. So um, I started a small nonprofit foundation. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to interview the person because Lee Abamante, who was the youngest American to do it, is a friend of mine. Um, I wanted to interview the african-american who had did it for my foundation which is dedicated to kids of color and low-income people so through my research they didn't exist like and i found that fast i was like what like it was shocking i, I went to google um, i went to the traveler century club i reached out to all my colleagues in travel journalism no african-american has done it documented i pray that somebody has done it but through my research nobody's done it and nobody's been able to show me a person who has so I figure, why not do it? And like, it's not only because, I mean, I'm blessed. I'm in a position in my life where I could sit on the beach for the rest of my life if I needed to. But I understand the responsibility of somebody like me in the position I have, I'm in and the platform that I have. Um, I feel every day I get an email or a private message or a comment from some kid or older brother or sister who, who looks to me for inspiration who lives vicariously through my adventures, like who wants to understand, you know, what it's like to be out here. Um, I did a video, uh, recently a video, the first video on my YouTube channel, I actually had to disable the comments on. Um, it was about experience of racism and xenophobia and, and nationalism, excuse me, in Poland. And it, it was so divisive. And then people were so angry, the vitriol, the hatred that was spewed at me in the comment section, from pe uh, Polish people, from white Americans, that like it got to a point where I had to just kind of put my hands up for like a week and a half and just walk away from everything. And this is the this and and, and I realized how important it was for me to get back in front of the camera because this is what we deal with on a daily basis, where we consistently told that our experience is not real where we're like, oh, you're overreacting, you're exaggerating. And I'm like, no, look, here's the video evidence of what, this is, this is the world. And it's crazy because you can, 
and you can see a man of color being killed and nothing happens on video. You know, that's the world we live in. You can see the experience of people of color on video and you still deny. You can see the experience of women on video and you can still deny that. You know, and, it, and it's mind boggling to me. So I found it, and if you look at my blog, my blog was start, was going maybe three and a half years before I even started doing YouTube, like before I even started messing with YouTube. And I now realized that uh, about a year ago, how powerful video is, how absolutely powerful it is um, in telling my story and telling my experience because I'm a far better speaker than I am a writer because I write the way I speak. Like I don't, and I have a degree in English and I hate writing. Like it's, it, 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 but if you have a conversation like this, this is what I can do with video. I can have a conversation with not only you, but other people of color, people from Poland, Germany, Thailand, South Korea to understand their perspective and give them my perspective and have a dialogue. And I think through my travels, I think through my videos, I think through my articles, I'm consistently having a dialogue. If you look at, for example, my Instagram, if you look at my Instagram, you don't see a lot of selfies of me. Like you see images of everywhere else. You see other people. You, my job is to, is to tell the story of the place and the people there and their reaction to me and my interaction with them. It's not for me to take beach selfies all day. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the burden that I've placed on myself is to tell the story of places and people as opposed to telling my story. <clears throat> Definitely a different perspective. I mean, um, I, I think I'm the opposite because uh, for me, I have a blog called uh, daddyblogger.com and it's so much about the personal narrative. So it's me on the beaches with my kids and I'm inspiring other people. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, I think everybody has, and, and, and this is one of the things today I feel, um, I've been in the game for a, quite a long time. I'm an old school blogger, I guess you would say. Um, but so many of these younger new bloggers that are coming in, they're constantly trying to copy everything that was done before. And I'm like, look, man, of course, of course, everybody wants to vlog like Casey Neistat. The guy is absolutely brilliant. Everybody wants to blog, uh, write like Nomadic Mad or Adventurous Kate. Of course. But the reason that these people have been successful is because they found their own thing, their own lane, their own voice. You trying to be them or trying to be me or trying to do the same things that we're doing it's not going to work because people are going to see through that. Like they want the authentic version of you. You are a family man. Like that's what you should be doing. Like you should be doing it. But for the most part, I am a single millennial male traveling the world. And that's the story I have to tell. Yeah. It's very interesting. You said that because I, I Unlike you, I'm not the world's best photographer. I'm actually quite a crappy photographer. I usually do it with my smartphone, and uh, sometimes it's a little bit uh, off-centered, and I'm not obeying the rule of thirds, but I get <laughs> our kids in the shot, and that's what's important. And that's uh, what our listeners and our followers on our Daddy Blogger platform uh, love, because they just like it that they're a dad with a... Uh, just with the iPhone taking pictures of the kids traveling and that inspires them because they might not have the best DSLR and they might just have a smartphone so uh, it's texture I think people it's polish versus texture and it's and, and it's gotten to a point where so many people are chasing the polish everybody's looking for the 4k drone all that stuff like nobody can like look man give me texture Give me, I want to see the gritty. I want to see the pimples of, uh, of your life. I want to see that, you know, like the raw, visceral, behind-the-scenes moment because that's real. 
in a world of, of Kardashians, like you, we need you to be that authentic self, that real person. That's what, what people gravitate towards. So anybody who's watching this and is curious about getting on video or starting a blog, be you, be an authentic version of you. And not only be an authentic version of you, be unapologetic about it. Because everything that we've dealt with, everything that we've come up with, we've understood and we've experienced made us that person. But at the same time, understand that you, sometimes you have to evolve your thinking. You have to change when you have new information. And I believe that we can only we can only approach the world from the lens that we are giving. Like we, that's it. Like I, if I have rose-colored glasses on my entire life of privilege, that's how I'm going to see the world. But as soon as I get in a position where I can take those off and I can see more texture in the world, I have to change the way I think about things. And it, it was interesting. I can't recall who did it, uh, who said it. I believe it, it might have been Mark Twain or Maya Angelou. I can't recall. But it says that uh, exposure is fatal to prejudice, I believe it is, or fatal to racism. And it's like, could you imagine? Just, just imagine this. Imagine how many times I have been the first African-American that somebody's met. I've been to 93 countries in the world. I have been the first African-American somebody's met a lot on a consistent basis uh, for several, several reasons. So you automatically show up and you are an official ambassador for your people. Like, and I, I and notice I said official, not unofficial. Even though to me, I am not the official ambassador for all black people. But to some little kid in Taiwan who's never seen an African-American before, I am. I am the living embodiment of everything that they had understood about black people up until that point. So that's a responsibility that we have as well. And all that we can do to, to really impact the world, to really change things in a way that we want it to change is to be authentic, to be our authentic, flawed selves. Yeah, you're speaking to the choir. I couldn't agree more. So, Eric, I definitely want to do a deeper dive into this whole goal of yours to visit yeah. every single country. And, uh, you know, firstly, I'd like for you to define what that means because uh, some people follow the United Nations definition of 193, and then there's a, there, uh, some people uh, follow the 196, including, I think, the Vatican and Palestine and yeah. Taiwan. And then some people just round it up to 200 by figure out a few islands that are not officially countries. So tell us a little bit about the, the number itself. What is the number? And uh, so for me, 196, how are you going to get uh, 196. And I'm also, I'm doing uh, the Vatican and Taiwan and disputed and one of those South Sudan. Um, I, I just feel that like, I, I kind of want to get around from the, uh, the bureaucracy of the countries. Uh, what is a country? What is it a country? Uh, and for me, it's more of a, a exposure thing. Um, so I usually, I, I, I don't count countries unless I can be there for three days. Um, that's my thing. However, I, I'll give this caveat. For this project, there are some countries that just don't warrant three days. Like uh, Liechtenstein, like, or San Marino, for example, or Vatican. So there's little caveats to that. Um, but for the for example, I was in Malta. Malta was the last uh, new country. I was there for four days. Like um, I tried to do the three day thing. Um, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. Um, but uh, yeah, 
Okay, so the whole Cal and Country thing is we're like a little club. There are a lot of us. Uh, not a lot of us. Uh, there, there's uh, quite a few of us who are trying to do it or who have done it, who give each other advice and tips and, you know, little workarounds for PC issues. And it's kind of a, a, a normal back and forth where it was like, oh, if you just set foot in the country, it doesn't count. If you go to an airport, in my opinion, it should not count. That's 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 me. I am not criticizing anybody who does that, but I don't believe that if you just show up at the airport or you spend uh, or you cross the border uh, and have a, a, a burger at McDonald's and then come back, that should count. I, I just don't. Um, I believe it's a disservice to the people and it's a disservice to your audience. Um, I am not going to say that I'm an expert uh, on any country outside of, I would say, Thailand, I would say Romania, I would say Germany, I would say the United States. The, I would say those are four countries I would be more than comfortable with sitting down and writing a book uh, or writing a guide to. Outside of that, I would not say that I'm an expert. Maybe I'm an expert on a city like Tokyo, for example, or uh, Santiago, Chile, uh, or Medellin, Colombia, but I wouldn't say as a country. So for me to say, this is what Malta is like after just being there for a few days. It's irresponsible and it's ridiculous. And I see so many of these people who are trying to go to every country, so many uh, travel bloggers who are giving these ridiculously vague narratives of what a place is like, what the people are like, what the culture is like. You don't even know. You, you barely can say three sentences in the local language which you're going to talk about what it's like to be in Taiwan. Like, it's frustrating to me. And I, and, and I, and I kind of take this very seriously because there is so many misinformation, so much, excuse me, so much misinformation out there about people and places. And there's some, but there are some universal truths that people don't touch on. People just want to be happy. People just want to take care of their families and want to be alone. That is the universal truth over 93 countries, I can say. But there are so many people out there who refuse to leave their Western privileged views of the world at home. And they judge. They judge cultures entirely different than theirs based on their narratives. For example, if you go to India, for example, I tell people India is not a place you go for a holiday. India is a place you go to experience. It is one of the most visceral, one of the most sensory overloading places on the planet earth but yeah. so many people so many people go there and they say oh it's so sad what the indians are doing to each other they're so i'm like what are you talking about like what have you been like how much time did you spend in india because they're way they're up here and down here there are people in the middle there are engineers and architects there are prostitutes there there are beggars there there are artists and, and there are fighters there, there are people from all walks of life in that country and you went for four days on a package tour and you're going to start to tell people what it's like uh, it's frustrating so for me at least three days you would never hear me making broad these broad claims about this entire country is like this but in my experience this is what it was like and i would say 99.9 percent .9 what i'm going to say is going to be positive because i feel there's just too much negative negativity in the world it's like I just don't have the patience and time for that, man. I'm gonna tell you, I love the food, I love the people, uh, I love the shopping, I love the skylines, I love the culture, I love the dance, I love the music, I love the energy. 
that's what I focus on. I let everybody else focus on all the negative stuff. Well said, well said. Well said, well said. I'll talk too much. I'm sorry, man. I don't talk too much. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I mean, uh, uh, it's your passion coming through, and I can definitely sense uh, your passion um, through everything you're saying today. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious about the system you follow. Um, you know, a lot of us who are um, having this massive goal, I call it a massive goal, but it's a very realistic goal as well, uh, you know, if you're strategic about it, uh, to reach every country in the world. Unfortunately, not that many people do it, um, either because of no desire to do it or they think it's logistically difficult. Uh, tell us about your system. I mean, uh, uh, is it doing region by region or um, just based on interest of the areas you're in? So how do you choose uh, which countries uh, to go to next? Well, it, that's always changing um, because I love such a chaotic lifestyle from, from a business standpoint. That, um, and for example, if I, can get a, if I can get a gig in a country I've never been to, I'll jump on it. I was like, yo, uh, I was like, oh, we have this press trip. Uh, we have this press trip. Uh, would you like? And for example, Andorra was a press trip. I went to Andorra for three days. That was a press trip. I was able to put that together. And it was just, it was like, I wouldn't even call it a press trip. That was literally me working with a hotel and the city of Andorra to promote Andorra for a few days. So um, I was able to put that together. So I was like, hey, I'm gonna, I, I got to fly to Barcelona anyway. I can drive up from Barcelona. And then I parlayed that um, into another assignment. So I think it just really depends on the work that I have going on, um, how, what season it is. Like I, I try not to be in Europe when it's cold because I don't like the cold weather. Um, I run away. Uh, and regional, for example, I am going to go, as of, as of today, I am going to go back to the U.S. Uh, for Christmas uh, during December. Then I'm going to go and, and finish up Central and South America. Um, and another friend, uh, Rick Gazarian, uh, Rick, uh, man, what is Rick? I can't remember. Which one. But Rick is also trying to go to every country in the world. He's at 115, I believe. So uh, me and him have never been to, uh, we didn't do uh, Uruguay. We haven't been to French Guinea, uh, Guyana, Suriname. So we're going to go together and get those countries done. And then I'm going to fly over to Bolivia and Peru and finish those up. Um, so it just kind of thing, it works out that way, uh, where I can kind of get jobs a little bit. Um, but it just, it's, it just changes, man. It just kind of depends on the situation, my travel. And, and again, man, I would say, I'm not trying to kill myself to do this, man. One of the most common questions I get is when are you going to get done? And my answer, I don't know. Like, I, it just depends. And this ain't cheap. Like it ain't cheap. People do not realize how it's expensive it is to do this and especially when you have a continent like Africa like people get on me you know people of color get on me about why I don't go to African nations um, any, as, as often I had to write I had to do a YouTube video and a blog about it it's like it's just it's prohibitively expensive and difficult at times uh, like the cost to travel on the continent is crazy expensive when you compare it to Asia and Europe so I am finishing up Asia and Europe before I deep dive in, into the African continent and hope that my business prospects have gotten so so good that I don't have to worry about the financial uh, issues that are going to hit. I mean, granted, being an American, it makes it difficult because our visa fees on African nations is high. It's 125 here, 150 there, 200 here. Like it, Those visa fees add up alone, not to mention the cost of flights and transportation in between countries. It's... It's, it's rough. The African continent is tough. 
So I'm going to finish up the regions that are um, that employ me, Europe and Asia employ me. Um, South America, uh, traveling between the countries is, is relatively simple and a lot easier. And then I'm going to deep dive into the African continent and likely finish up the project there. Sounds like a plan. And uh, there's always all those islands in the middle of nowhere. In the yeah, Pacific, yeah. Uh, 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 Gary Arndt from Everything Everywhere is a friend of mine. Um, and Gary Arndt's print everywhere. <laughs> and he, whenever we we talk, he always tells me, hey, well, you got to get on the Pacific Islands. I'm like, I know, I know. I've been a lot to, and I haven't even been to Australia and New Zealand yet. So uh, those two are just sitting over there waiting. Um, I am pushing towards 100. I'm, I am hoping I can get to 100 by the end of this year. I don't know if I can pull it off, but I for number 100, I want it to be like somewhere special like New Zealand or Australia, like somewhere really cool where I can kind of deep dive into it yet. Sounds good. I mean, uh, the way I'm doing it, I, I might as well talk a little bit as well because you said you're talking too much. So yeah, I'll give you a breath of fresh air. Uh, so what I what I what I do is um, I focus on uh, continent by continent. So uh, when I was in my twenties, I did Europe. Um, I did Europe. I mean, I did about twenty five countries uh, traveling around there as a backpacker. Uh, no intention of traveling around the entire world at that time. Just Europe. And then I did my Middle East trip where I went from uh, Turkey into. Egypt overland um, and then I did uh, Asia when I taught English in Japan and then I traveled to about 15 countries in Asia um, and then after I did that I studied in Australia and I was able to see a little bit of Oceania um, and then obviously now uh, we're actually in South America and as we're doing this interview I'm over here in Guyana of all places and I actually oh, you beat me to it. Come on. <laughs> I visited those two countries you just mentioned, uh, French Guyana, which is technically not a country. It's um, it's actually prior of um, oh. France, so I didn't even know if you count that as one of the 190. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Territory. Territory, exactly. Um, and then um, there's also uh, Suriname, which I just visited. So um, my goal um, in this year is to visit all of the South American countries, and there's a hiccup. Venezuela is in the midst of chaos, so looks like yeah. I'm going to have to skip Venezuela. And then our goal is to uh, head over uh, across um, Central America, which I have only been to Mexico. I haven't done the, the rest of Central America. And you then love, love. Africa is definitely on my list, too. I've been in only two African countries, um, Egypt and South Africa, and I have 52 other countries in Africa still to go. Yeah, it's funny. That's usually the two that everybody's been to, or Morocco. You throw Morocco in there. Like, so... Those yeah. usually like the top three, yeah. Yeah, and then for me, I'll be the That's Caribbean, awesome. Bahamas, and the Pacific Islands, and then uh, I should be done there. But I'll probably right. end up finishing either in one of these little mini islands or somewhere in Africa as well. Yeah. Well, you know, the one thing that, uh, like, um, one thing that I've been doing, um, it, it's. Do you know? John, are you familiar with Johnny Ward? Uh yeah, Johnny. Uh, Johnny Ward. Yes, I know him. Yes. Yeah, Johnny just finished. He literally lives across from me. He's like right there. Um, so Johnny just finished uh, going to every country in the world. And one piece of advice was to, to on each continent, have one special country that you can leave for last. So every single continent has one country um, that, you know, I'm going to leave for last. Like uh, for me, it's Cyprus. Europe is, In Europe, it's Cyprus. That's going to be... Uh, my final European country, and then uh, I kind of can figure it out because the last one has got to be something special, something big, man. But yeah, awesome, man. It's dope. It's always it's always cool because this is such a a unique thing. Like this is such a unique journey that a lot of people don't understand. And to speak to somebody who gets it or 
and, and, and it's by accident, right? You know, you just travel and all of a sudden you look up and you're at 60 countries. You're like, oh, maybe I can just go to everywhere, you know, kind of make it a thing, you know? So it's awesome. Absolutely. At, at first, the task seemed so overwhelming. I mean, uh, in, up until uh, early 20s, I'd only been to like Canada, US and India, where my ethnicity is from. And uh, from my 20s to I actually just turned 40, I ended up uh, visiting, I'm now at uh, 65. Uh, and by the end of this year, I'll be at 70 countries. And, uh, um, you know, I, I'm inching my way forward. But the task seems um, achievable now. Um, you know, maybe if you asked me 10 years ago, I would be like, you know, I would love to dream about it, but I don't think it's going to happen to me. But now I'm so determined to make it happen because I I hear stories of people like you mentioned uh, mentioned Johnny Ward or, or Cassie, who just uh, was the the fastest female in history or the fastest human in history to visit every continent, every country. Sorry, uh, uh, um, and people all do it differently. Like uh, one guy, Graham, he was the first person yeah, to overland, yeah. Uh, every country overland, right? Without flying once. Yeah. That's impressive, right? That's really impressive. Like, so have you met Graham? Have you spoken to Graham? Uh, not yet. You know, I love, I love uh, to connect him onto this podcast, but uh, just amazing guy. And, it, and it's, it, it's so interesting that you know the, the, these are we're all from such different walks of life um, are taking this similar journey in a different way, and all of our perspectives are always come back to the same thing. People around the world are amazing. Like every single one of us say the same exact thing. People are nothing but warm and welcoming and opening to you. And it's like when I look online and I see people bashing countries and travel and, and talking down about places, and I'm like, talk to the people who have traveled, who have not, not two or three countries here and there, the people who've been to 20, 30 countries who've traveled the world, and almost everyone will tell you people. People are absolutely amazing. And I don't put my st- I don't put my stock in government. I don't put my stock in politicians. I don't put my stock in businessmen. I put my stock in people. In in everyday hardworking people because they have done nothing but shown me kindness and love and and energy and open their homes to me. I've had more free food in my life <laughs> than I've ever paid for. I can I can guarantee you in the last ten years I've had more free food than I've paid for in my entire life from just the kindness of others. Just oh my god, India! Oh, I don't think I paid for food the entire time I was in India. Like it, it, it was absolutely amazing, like how warm and welcoming people. And it's always the people who have the least. You know, like we walk around with. $2,000 cameras and smartphones and laptops and all of these things. And you go to these places where people have nothing, where people have dirt floors and tin roofs and they open their home to you and they give you the last of their meat for the week as a guest. They give it to you expecting nothing. That's why I travel, man. That's I travel to show people that world, those people, those experiences. That's why I do what I do. Oh, yeah. You know, you're speaking to the choir here. People are what it's all about. And, you know, I just want to do my own little rant here. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to end up soon. Otherwise, we'll be talking in, into the middle of the night. <laughs> about That's stuff. the problem, man. <laughs> yeah. This might be my longest podcast episode, yes, just because uh, when I meet, uh, you know, another brother who wants to travel around the world, we get so excited and we lose track and lose focus. <laughs> quick, Quickly, I want to do my rant. 
Um, you know, the Canadian government website, they had a warning against going to Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, me and my wife and kids are traveling together. And my wife saw that before me. And then she's like, we're not going to Johannesburg. We're not going there. Look at what they're saying about the city. Um, you know, we're going to be robbed and we're going to be mugged. Uh, we can't walk around at night. Um, uh, there's carjackings. And um, I actually started getting scared as well, even though I've traveled a, a lot and I, I'm kind of street smart. Because of that travel warning by my own government website, I was like, I think we should just uh, go to the airport and exit as soon as possible. But um, we ended up actually staying in Johannesburg for like uh, five days and um, it was not dangerous. I mean, uh, there are obviously issues there with um, gangs and, um, you know, walking around at night, et cetera. But I I'm traveling with my wife and kids and I mean, people are so friendly. Uh, there are people always looking out for us saying like, you know, don't go there, don't go there. You know, are you going to the ATM machine, machine, uh, machine to withdraw money? We'll escort you there. And, oh, do you need a taxi? We'll help you get the taxi. And, uh, you know, what else do you need help with? And, I met so incredible people in Johannesburg, and I keep getting angry uh, when people say it's dangerous. And re same with Rio de Janeiro. I was just there, um, um, you know, last month, and people said, "Don't go to the beaches. Don't go to Copacabana. Don't go to Ipanema. These are two of the most amazing beaches in the world. And if if you listen to others, you wouldn't go." And I went there, and we loved both beaches. I I, I rode a bicycle with my uh, daughter from one beach to the other, and uh, it was one of our best. Uh, travel memories from this particular trip. Uh, we stayed in a favela, and again, the media, the Olympics, the, the World Cup, they would say, don't go to a favela. And, uh, oh, staying in a favela was one of the highlights as well. So that's my quick rant. You know, don't listen to media, don't listen to naysayers. Don't even listen to your government website because they are wrong. And, uh, <laughs> you know, don't, when, don't when, listen yes. to us. Uh, like, like, when, when you come to realize that that is my narrative that is my experience individual story and it might not be what it's what you experience you know i'm not a middle-class white woman like we me and her are gonna have different experiences you know like and you have to take that with a grain of salt you know so like i'm speaking from my privileged perspective and position um and i think a lot and you know the u.s does it even worse than canada with these travel warnings like we wouldn't we would never leave a country if you listen to them but they're, they, and they aren't all necessarily false. They're based on some truth. But it's the truth of a small, small 1%. And you gotta remember that the people who are most affected by violence and terrorism are locals, the people who live there. The, and those people understand the dangers and they're trying to help you. They're gonna help you to avoid those dangers because they don't want to see you get hurt or robbed or killed. They don't want to see their country's reputation or image on an international scale be tarnished. And they understand the importance of community, of us as a species. And I think one of the biggest issues that we have in, say, the U.S. and Canada is that we have so damn much that we don't have to rely on each other anymore. It is easy to be an introvert. It's easy to be an individual in the U.S. and Canada now, as opposed to, say, Thailand or Cambodia or Brazil, where the community is still so important and powerful. So I think it, I think anybody who's watching this or anybody who's watching my videos, um, the one thing I want you to understand is that as soon as you leave uh, your home country, you become part of somebody else's community. Uh, for better or for worse, you are becoming part of that community and you gotta understand that there's certain rules within that community and there's some things that you can learn from that community.
I think that's extremely important. You know, speaking of leaving your own, own country, there are a lot of people who have never actually left their own city, their state, or their country. Uh, I know in America, especially. Uh -huh. So tell us about um, what advice or tips would you give to someone who is listening, who's watching, who dreams of traveling the world, but they just put barriers on themselves. What should they do? Uh, you know what? First, uh, the first step I say is local. Start traveling local, especially Americans. Um, I, the United States is the single best travel country on the face of the planet Earth. Period. Nobody even comes close to the diversity of things uh, and experiences that you can have in the United States. From surfing to uh, rock climbing to casinos to world-class shopping to restaurants and culinaries to, to photography. We, the United States has the very best in the world in the individual country. So uh, from American-Canadian standpoint, uh, from well, anywhere, travel your own country. Travel your own neighborhood or your own city and see what's out there. Um, for example, like a city like Bangkok. Um, and we, a bunch of us expats were just having a dinner last night talking about this, that Bangkok is one of those cities where you can always find something new. It's such, it's always some new shop or little vendor or festival or something to experience. So the first tip I would say is to explore locally, uh, your hometown or your country. The next tip is pick a place that's not too much of a culture shock. Um, I, I, I see that a lot of people, um, they see my experiences in a place like South Africa or in a place like Romania or Thailand, and it's an extreme culture shock by comparison to the United States. But you don't have to do it like that. You can go to London. Like, you can go to the UK, which is, I mean, it's travel on training wheels. I mean, there's no, there's no real culture shock outside of the cool accent, like, for... Uh, Americans or whatnot, um, pick a place that is familiar, -ish. Um, a place like Paris that you've seen consistently uh, throughout your life in the media, uh, so you can just get that travel on your skin. You just got to get it. Um, reach out to people that you know travel. Like anybody, like if you look at my YouTube and my Facebook page, every comment gets a reply. That's just a, like a dumbass man bad like everybody who asks for help gets it from me um on a weekly basis i do five 30 minute calls with viewers and followers like if anybody needs some advice or help planning for free i'll just do it because i like helping people um reach out to us those of us who because this is what we do granted i don't have a career in travel journalism without you guys without my audience, without the people who come to me for help and advice. I am greatly appreciative of the life that I've been able to build. And part of that uh, success that I've had is because of the people who love me and support me and, and, and keep coming to my vlogs and, and keep commenting and, and, and who are sending me ideas and questions and who've helped me throughout the years, who, who said, hey, Eric, I've got a place in Berlin. You can stay at it if you want to stay for a week. Oh, great. Thank you. Or, hey, um, my mother has a small B&B uh, &B in the south of Italy. We would love to have you out. All right. Awesome. If you want, if you have that travel bug, if you have it inside of you, and I think inherently we all do to a certain extent, you got to feed it. You got to feed it or you're going to go crazy. You got to feed it. Um, domestic, domestic travel is travel. Familiar travel is travel. So um, yeah, those are the pieces of advice I have for anybody. And and you gotta be, you gotta try to be flexible. You know, you gotta make it a priority. Um, like uh, you gotta put money away. I, I say uh, travel is like it's like fitness. 
nobody's going to, and I'm a pretty fit guy, but like nobody is going to push that weight off your chest but you. You might get a little bit of help from somebody here and there, but for the most part, you got to push that weight off your chest. You got to make that choice. You got to make that decision to make that a priority in your life, just like you make everything else, just like you make family a priority, just like you make food a priority or video games or fashion or video or, or whatever hobbies you have. Travel has to be made a passion in your life, and you have to do. You have to make the sacrifice to make that passion happen. Absolutely, uh, you know, I, I, we've pretty much been in agreement for almost everything we both said in this interview. So, thank you, <laughs> uh, Eric and Rick. <laughs> so, Eric, uh, uh, if people wanted to connect with you online, subscribe to you on YouTube, follow you on social media, find out more about your photography, how can they do that? Well, um, I'm, uh, of course, MinorityNomad.com. Um, I've been doing a lot more work uh, on social media. Uh, you guys can hear my voice or see my face across social media every single day. Um, I try to post a new piece of content every day, if possible. Um, so I would say uh, Instagram, uh, at Minority Nomad, basically at Minority Nomad everywhere. Uh, but on Facebook, I'm The Minority Nomad. So if you Google Minority Nomad, you're going to see this mug. So, uh, yeah, and YouTube. Uh, comments, uh, Instagram stories, those are my platforms. I'm always going to be in front of the camera from now on. So those are the best ways to get in touch with me, Minority Nomad. Awesome. Uh, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, Minority Nomad. No, not lemon squeezy, mac and cheesy, man. Come on. <laughs> Japanesey. <laughs> awesome. So uh, thanks once again for your time uh, over there in Thailand. I look forward to running to you as we each hit the countries, it might be somewhere in South America, looks like it, because- Yeah, man, I need your help, man. You got the inside track now. <laughs> there you go. So thanks everyone for tuning in to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast where we teach you how to make your travel dreams come true. It might be to visit every country in the world as the first Chinese person, or the first Indian, or the first African, or the first you, <laughs> and the first you to travel to that country, uh, to every country in the world. So do it, you know? You only have this one life, so do, do it while you can. So uh, tuning out here from uh, Digital Nomad Mastery, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, make sure you do uh, follow us on social media, and we'll catch you in the next episode.